so we are in the midst of a, a two-week series jumping onto uh, hashtag church2. Um, if any of you are familiar with the wider movement that's happening in the world, there is, a sec- there is a whole sexual reckoning on how we deal with interactions between male and female and sexual interactions in the workplace and across the world. The way we think about sex, I don't think is undergoing such a dramatic revolution as much as it has since like 1960s. We're in a really pivotal time of how we're thinking and how we're interacting with it. And Monica opened up last week realizing that while we know that sexual abuse and sexual harassment is running rampant in all different areas across the world and society, as a church, we're naive if we think it's not happening with us as well. Um, if the statistics are to believed uh, from other churches and other nations across the country, anywhere between 60 to 80% of people in this room will have experienced some level of sexual abuse, probably within the church community. And that's a sobering and difficult statistic for us to work through. And so Monica last week talked to us about this one simple phrase that's so important for us to remember, which is that silence is not spiritual. Us not talking about it and sweeping it under the carpet is not a spiritual response to what's going on. And in fact, God calls us to shine his light of truth in on it, even if it's really difficult for us to deal with, and even if it's a really tough conversation to have with each other. It's what God calls us to do. And so tonight I'm wanting to carry on from Monica's conversation, what she opened up last week, and take it one step further um, and bring it home to maybe some systems and some structures that maybe don't help us when it comes to sexual abuse, Uh, because we've got all kinds of theologies around sin, around how sex is supposed to work, where it's supposed to be okay, where it's not supposed to be okay, what we're allowed to do, and how do we get through it. We have theologies and ways of thinking that I think aren't necessarily the most helpful in what God wants to do through us. So, but to begin tonight, I want to start by showing you a video of a pastor. It's a, it's a story that unfolded within America in the last few months of a church called High Point Church, and uh, their main teaching pastor uh, went through his own church to mo- moment where he was accused of a sexual assault when he was a youth pastor uh, 20 years ago. And so there's, there's a video now that I want to show that kind of engages with the story of how he did an initial apology that got a standing ovation from his church. Um, but then the story came out that it was actually a lot more complicated than that. And so this is a video that kind of shows a little bit both sides of his apology, but then also the victim and her story. And just a bit of a warning, it does have some graphic detail as it goes through what happened in this encounter. So if you're squeamish or if some things offend you, I apologize. Um, but let's take a look at this. High Point Church, at all of our locations, everybody watching online, I want you to know that we love you in an incredible way. And we are sincerely sorry for any dishonor As a kid growing up in the church, I really looked up to the church leaders. If you're a guest, I'm very sorry that you're having to hear about a difficult subject, but I do. These were the people to emulate. Only love covers a multitude of sins. Andy is going to come and share with us at this time. The only apology, if you can even call it that, was when he ran out of the truck screaming, oh my God, oh my God, what have I done? You have to take this to the grave with you.
Um, I'm going to sit if that's all right. Um, forgive me that I'm going to read something to you um, that is not my normal flow. Um, I called my mom and asked her if it was okay if Andy gave me a ride home, and she said yes. I want to read this um, partly to make sure I say what I intended to say and also to help me get through what I need to say. He passed the turn to go to my house, and I honestly thought we were going to TCBY to get frozen yogurt. Uh, I don't want reading this to minimize anything. I've never wanted to minimize anything about what's taking place. Then he turned down a dark dirt road off the main road. Um, as a college student on staff at a church in Texas more than 20 years ago. I just remember him unzipping his pants and asking me if I would suck his dick, if I would give him a blowjob. I regretfully had a sexual incident with a female high school senior in the church. Oh, I looked up to him. I trusted him. So when he asked me to do that, I thought, this must mean he loves me. Like, this is a man of God I look up to. I apologized and sought forgiveness from her, her parents, her discipleship group, the church staff, and the church leadership. What happened was a crime. This is not something that the church should handle internally. I remember asking, well, what's going to happen now? And they just said that the church would handle it. Andy Savage was still teaching. In agreement with wise counsel, I took every step to respond in a biblical way. And I'm just aching inside because nobody's doing anything. Once I had told more people, then they had to act. I resigned from ministry and moved back home to Memphis. I accepted full responsibility for my actions. Andy was allowed to go before the church and basically say that he had made a mistake and that it was time for him to move on. I did not attend that service, uh, nor did I attend the going away party that they had for him afterwards. I was and remained very remorseful for the incident and deeply regret the pain I caused her and her family as well as the pain I caused the church and God's kingdom. People were celebrating him and showering him with love and um, telling him how much they'll miss him. And here I am struggling. I further disclosed this incident to Chris Conley before coming on staff at High Point and have shared with key leaders throughout my tenure here. This incident was dealt with in Texas 20 years ago. He calls it an incident. He brings up how it was 20 years ago, so many times. Uh, when this happened 20 plus years ago, I did everything I knew to do under the counsel I was given to cooperate with those involved, to repent of my sins, take responsibility for my actions, and seek forgiveness. I never sought to cover this up because nobody was saying the severity of what had happened, I was being blamed. It was, in their eyes, a, a consensual sexual sin. 
In hindsight, I see that more could have been done for Jules. I am truly sorry more was not done. Until now, I did not know there was unfinished business with Jules. So today I say, Jules, I am deeply sorry for my actions 20 years ago. We as a church of all places should be getting this right. It's unfathomable to me that the secular world, Hollywood, are taking a stand. The church should have been the first group to stand up and say, we will not allow this. My repentance over this sin 20 years ago was done believing that God's forgiveness is greater than any sin. And I still believe that. I want our churches to change how they handle sexual assault and sexual abuse in the church. It's a crime, not just a sexual sin. For any painful memories or fresh wounds this has created for anyone, I'm sorry. And I humbly ask for your forgiveness. I love you all very much. challenging, eh? That is tough to watch, tough to reckon with. And the scary thing is that's so easily happening everywhere. I'm I'm picking this up and it's, it's, when I've looked at the story, wanting to pull it to you and bring it to you gently and no part of me wants to drag uh, neither Andy nor Jules nor anyone involved at that church through the mud. But I think their story represents a reckoning and something that we can look and watch and learn a lot from. Because obviously, as you can see there, when he finished his apology in the church, he um, got a standing ovation from all the church members who only heard a small portion of what happened. And uh, that standing ovation went worldwide. Um, And for many of those who'd been victims of sexual abuse, that felt like the condoning of an abuser with no real work through or sense of justice for the victims of that story. Does that make sense? And so the thing is, though, when you look at Andy and you look at the story of that church, I think that they did genuinely try to perhaps model what biblical repentance should look like. I think they did try to follow what they understood the Bible was calling them to do in terms of asking forgiveness. But my question is, what if their understanding of that, of sin, and of repentance maybe wasn't as full as what the Bible would actually call us to. Maybe their view of sin is too narrow. And you can hear that in some of the ways he talks about it. Uh, You know, I believe that God's love just covers over sin. It was an incident, and I believe that there's restoration. Now, those things are all true, but if you move there too fast, I think you end up missing a lot of what God is actually wanting to do in the midst of that. And so I think for us, as we look at that, one of the first things that we have to do when it comes to sexual sin and sexual abuse is that before we even get into that, we actually have to take a moment to rethink sin. Now, when I say the word sin, it's such a difficult word to use when you're preaching as a pastor because everybody's got a different picture in their head that pops up when I say that word. When I say sin, some of you will be like, yeah, preach on sin, pastor. Bring the fire of the Lord down for repentance. And you really like it because you're weird like that. Um, Or 
Perhaps when I say sin, you think of like, no, here's some Bible basher. He's just going to try and ram the Bible down my throat. It's just God's angry about some small inconsequential thing I did. You know, maybe I stole a lolly when I was two and now I'm a sinner. So I'm going to burn in hell forever. A lot of people think about sin that way. So there's this huge wide variety in how we think and how we understand sin. And so I think it's really important that we engage with what it means biblically and theologically, and that will help us move forward to understand what we do with it in terms of sexual abuse in the church to movement. So a lot of our ideas about sin come from an idea of sin affects us in like a vertical relationship. So sin affects me and my relationship with God, right? That's a really common thing. A lot of us would, if you've been at church for a while, you know, if you sin, we've got all those passages, right? All who sinned have fallen short of the glory of God. We know that if we've sinned, we've sinned against God and that hinders our relationship with him. For some of you, you'd be like, oh, if I've sinned, that means I can't, you know, be with Jesus. That means I can't go to heaven. That means I have to go to hell. You know, we've got amazing verses like uh, David when he was repenting of, uh, well, killing a man and engaging in sexual harassment. Uh, He wrote the Psalm saying, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. And now in our culture, I think because we are influenced by a particular strand of church history, we've come a lot influenced by British theology and 18th century British were very high on sin and you got to repent from your sin, and morality is really important, and that really affects our understanding. And so when we see that against you and you alone have I sinned, I think that has a lot of traction with us, right? If we sinned, we know we have to go and ask forgiveness from God. I think most of us would be like, yeah, that makes sense. Now, I wholeheartedly want to affirm that and say, yes, sin absolutely affects our relationship with God. It affects our, our engaging with his kingdom and who he's called us to be. But if our view of sin only stays in a vertical layer, then we're missing out on the wider biblical picture. Because when I sin, when I engage in something that God has called us not to do, when I break his laws, I'm not just offending God. That has other implications for the people that I interact with. Sin is not just vertical, but it's also horizontal. You understand? So in like the Ten Commandments, you even get it blocked up like that. The first few are all about like honor the Lord your God, don't have any other idols, very vertical relationally. The second half of the Ten Commandments are very horizontal. Do not kill, do not steal, do not commit adultery, very much affecting how we interact with one another. There's this great part in Ezekiel where Ezekiel's talking to these people and he says, look, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. So we would say that they were greedy, right? They were uncaring. But that didn't just affect God. Their sin affected the poor. Their greed was so much that poor didn't have any food to eat. They were so consumed with themselves and their own pride that they couldn't look outside of themselves. And that had consequences on a horizontal level, affecting other people. So sin, if we're thinking about it only in vertical terms, we are missing what happens. And so we can get away with a lot. And if we sin, we'd be like, oh, I just need to go back and say to God, I'm really, really sorry. But if our repentance only stays in a vertical aspect, we are missing what's happened to the person we've offended. You see see what's happening there? So when we're thinking about sin, We have to think about sin as the corruption of all that God has made. 
So vertically, it corrupts our relationship with him, how we interact with him, how we understand him, how we view ourselves, but it also corrupts our relationships with one another. When I've killed, it affects the person and the family of the person that I've killed. When I've stolen, it affects the persons from whom I've stolen from. When I commit sexual offenses, it affects the person whom I've done them to. And as long as we only view sin in a vertical dimension, then we're always going to have bad forms of repentance. Because it means when we do something, we're always going to be like, oh, quick, I need to go God and tell him I'm sorry. Whew, I did that. Thankfully, God's gracious. That's me. I'm going to go out and pastor another church. You see? And so we need to broaden our understanding of sin and understanding that every time we sin, we don't just affect ourselves and our relationship with God. We affect our neighbor. And this is where our view of sexual sin then needs to grow and develop a little bit, interacting with this. So sexual sin, this will be fun. Um, this is cool. I get to say sex a lot in this sermon, and you have to deal with it. Um, most of our, there's lots of writings about sex in the New Testament and the Old Testament. Um, most people, if they know anything about Christians, usually if they're non-Christian, they know that Christians are like anti-sex, right? Like just... Stop doing it um, would be the main thing that we'd push through. But a lot of our, the main crux of our thinking actually comes from Jesus. Because while the Old Testament would say like, hey, don't commit adultery. Hey, don't sleep with that virgin. That's a bad thing to do. Jesus actually takes it one step further. See, in his time, he and the Pharisees were engaging and debating. And there was a lot of debate about how far is too far. What actually can, like, consists of adultery? What if I've just had a lot of conversations with her? Is that adultery? Well, what if she was unmarried at this time and then I brought her into my family? Is that adultery? And they were trying to figure out where the line was. Is this okay? Is this not okay? Is this okay? Is this not okay? And so Jesus, seeing them trying to toe the line and trying to see how far they could get, get away with things, he takes it one step further and Jesus says this. Now, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, we're all stuffed then, aren't we? Realistically, by Jesus' understanding where Jesus puts it to is because he realized that Jesus recognizes that so often we want to draw the line of what's okay, what can we get away with. Jesus takes it one step further and says, if we're already thinking about what we get away with, we've already gone too far. As soon as we begin to think about that person, as soon as we begin to engage away in, with that person in our mind that way, we have already done it. We have already committed adultery with them. We have already committed sexual sin. We've already committed sexual abuse by engaging someone into something that we want in our heads without them knowing their consent, which is a challenging, challenging thing for us. And so for us, in light of this whole church and Me Too movement, you have the words of Jesus. He says, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. And so what comes down to is you end up getting this breakdown if you're looking at this heart attitude of what it means to really love someone and engage with them sexually, you get it broken down into these two things, love and lust. And here within the Christian framework, those distinctions really, really matter because I think those lines can get blurred really easily. And if you've listened to the stories of the sexual harassment and you've listened to the stories of people getting abused, People try to blend the lines between love and lust so easily, and that's one of the excuses that they use to get away with it for so long. I really loved that person. 
I really, really cared about them. Even that girl who, uh, Jules, in that story, she thought, well, he must really, really love me. And so it's all important for us to pull these two apart and distinguish what the difference is between those two. And so for Christians, when we think about love, we can only ever think about love this way. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So when Christians, whenever we talk about love, and when we talk about loving someone, and this includes sexually, the mode of operating, the only way that we can think is in the same way that Jesus loved us, which is laying down his life for us. So that means love within a Christian framework is always outward focused. See, when Jesus Christ died for us, it was a sacrifice for our benefit. Even though we had nothing to give him, even though he had nothing to gain from us, even though we couldn't ever repay him, he laid down his life so that we could be restored, could be healed. Can you see how that love movement is always outward? So when Christians talk about love, it should always be for the sake of the other, for the other to grow, for the other to develop, for the other to prosper. And so even within sexual encounters, they need to be framed that way. When two Christians engage in sex, you want that sexual encounter to be each one wanting to love the other. Give to the other so the other one flourishes and grows and develops and becomes all that God wants them to be. And this is where you get the flip side of Christian love is always outward focused. Then lust is the complete opposite. Lust takes something that's there, someone who's there, and turns them into an object for our own sense of gratification, for our own sense of pleasure. So when you see these stories of uh, Andy all those years ago, you can see Jules thinking, well, does he love me? Is this something that he really wanted for me? Well, for our viewpoint, we can always say, well, no, because in that encounter, he wasn't thinking about her at all. In that moment, she became not so much a human, but a tool for his own gratification. See, as Christians, we believe that every single person we encounter, whether we like them or not, whether they're old or young, whether they're a different race than us or not, it does not matter. Every single person carries the image of God within them. They carry, God, they carry an element of God's personhood, and they have value because of that, regardless of what we may think or like or feel about them. And whenever we engage in lust, whenever we engage in sexual immorality, what we're doing is we're taking a person who, has, who carries the image of God and we turn them into an object for our own sense of gratification. And you see that in the story before. This girl became a ploy for his own pleasure. And the dangerous thing about lust is that if we don't realize it, because lust is very, that sin is very horizontal. When you engage with that some way, you're stripping them of their personhood. You're stripping them of their value. And you can see that in Jules walking forward. She's like, I thought he loved me. I thought I was valued. I thought I was someone special. I've lost that. Because he took that from her by engaging in sin that way. Do you see how those horizontal aspects of sin begin to come through? But in his repentance, that was not dealt with. Even when he first realized it, he said he ran around the car and said, oh God, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Please don't tell anyone. Which means, I need to get right with God, I need to get right with God, I need to get right with God. Stuff what's happened here. And if we're not careful, and this is why I wanted to go through it, if we're not careful, 
we in the church can allow those systems to perpetuate long-term because we think, oh, it's okay. They've done their repentance. They've done their forgiveness with God. They've done that vertical thing. They're fine. But that is not okay. As the church, as long as we condone that just by saying a prayer and just moving on, we are enabling abusers and we're enabling sexual immorality and we're enabling hurt within our churches. And that is not okay. Each and every one of us needs to understand that with every sexual interaction, if we begin to engage with them in a way that is not appropriate, we are robbing that person of their personhood. We're turning them into an object for our own pleasure and that demeans them, that hurts them. And you see that time and again throughout the stories of the Me Too movement. Women over and over and over again, as they tell their stories of what happened, they feel like I've been robbed of who I was. Whether it was in a workplace, they felt like I thought I was doing a really good job, but now I'm not so sure that I actually was. I think I might've just been promoted because he liked me. I thought I was a really valued partner of this team, but oh, I think it was, I was just there so he could get off his kicks. And it robs people of their personhood. And for us in the church, if we follow Jesus, if we want to follow his path and his call and his way, that is not okay. We need to have a wider view of sin, a wider view of repentance, and a more thorough view of what that means to ask for forgiveness beyond a vertical movement. Because as long as we stay here, we engage in cheap grace and we enable abuse within our communities. And it needs to be said over and over and over again, that is not okay. And we need to reckon with that. This is very, very true for us in terms of sexual abuse, but also the, tr the same thing is true for us whenever we gauge in sexual sin. Whether that is with a, another person that we know, or even for us, if that is online in pornography, what we do is when we're going onto that computer screen, we are seeing people who bear God's image and then we strip them of their humanity and turn them into objects for our own sense of gratification. And as long as we want to follow Jesus and follow his way, then we need to repent from that and turn away and, and do real repentance. Real repentance that doesn't just quietly go into my bedroom and be like, Jesus, Jesus, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I don't want to deal with the consequences. That's not repentance. Real repentance requires open and honest accountability. If you are engaging in sexual sin and sexual immorality, yes, there is absolutely forgiveness and redemption within the church. Absolutely, I believe God has a plan to restore you and heal you, but that doesn't come through cheap grace and us just pretending it doesn't happen. The road to redemption actually walks through really difficult conversations. It comes through dying to yourself, dealing with the consequences of your actions, allowing other people to speak honestly and openly into your journey, opening up yourself to God and others and say, God, this is where I am. Person that I have hurt, this is where I am. Have mercy. Forgive me and let me know what I need to do to make this right. Does that make sense? You with me? I just don't want us as a church to be able to hide behind excuses of, well, I've asked for forgiveness and it's okay, because it's not. If we've not engaged in the longer conversations of repentance and reconciliation, and those are tough and soul-bearing and difficult, if we haven't engaged with those, then we have not really allowed God's light to shine in on us. 
and we won't really find the freedom and the hope that God promises us if we don't engage fully in that journey. So if I can invite the team to come back out. Um, Look, this is the end of our kind of series on church too. Really, this is only a snapshot. This is only just a little beginning of a much wider conversation that we need to have. But we wanted to start it and say, look, we need to know that A, as the church, we can be doing a lot better because we are not doing it perfectly. And we we need to allow God to shine his light in fully to reveal both the ways we've offended God and ourselves, but also in the ways we need to grow because the ways we've offended each other. Because that needs to move on. And we as the church could have an opportunity to show the rest of the world as we reconcile what it means to engage with this church to movement. We could show the world what repentance actually looks like rather than trying to justify it, saying it was an incident 20 years ago. We could model what it means to actually lay down our lives and say, this is who we are, as nasty as that is, and we're going to do what we can to make it right. And that could have a movement and shaping on the rest of our culture if we allow God to do it within us first. So they're going to, they're going to play the song Tremble for us. And I want us to sing it again because they're, again, if, if the statistics are to believe, then chances are there are those of us here who have experienced elements of sexual abuse in their own story and in their life. And I want to sing this song because I really believe that what God is doing through this Me Too movement and also through the church too and how it happens in the church, I think it is God's movement within us. It is God's chance to shine his light and make the darkness that has stayed there for too long tremble and move away. And in Jesus, we can find healing and hope and a way forward that heals the victims and that truly works with the abusers and the perpetrators. Does that make sense? Can we, can we stand as I pray? Jesus, this is a really difficult conversation to have. None of us really want to reckon with the difficulties that we're faced with. And as much as we'd like to in the church, we'd, like to be, we'd love to be able to say, yeah, Jesus, we're doing good, we're doing it better. But the truth is we're probably not. And the struggle is for us to say, Jesus, we are getting it wrong too. And Jesus, just like you said, any time that we engage, we take that step further. Even in our mind, we are engaging in systems that oppress and hurt other people through our own sexual sins. God, all we can do is say, Lord, would you have mercy? For us, for the ways that we in the church have abused and hurt others, would you forgive us and have mercy? For the ways that we need to grow, but we're still trying to hide it up with bad understandings of sin and bad, cheap repentance, God, would you convict us and would you have mercy? God, to those of us here in our community who have borne the weight of abuse, for those who carry the scars of people who have done harm to them that have turned them into objects for someone else's pleasure, God, would you have mercy upon them? 
Would you do what only you can do? Would you heal and restore? God, would you give us the courage to open up our hearts and really let your light shine in? Would you give us the courage to open up our hearts and let the light of others shine in? The last thing we want to do is keep hiding this, keep sweeping it under the carpet, keep pretending like it's not happening. Keep pretending like we're not part of the problem because, God, we are. So Jesus, 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 shine your light. Jesus, 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 bring your hope. Jesus, 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 bring your healing. Jesus, 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 cast the darkness out. Let only your light remain. Though it may be painful and though it may slay us and though it may cause us to go through some difficult things, your light is always what we want. Your truth is really what only sets us free. So Jesus, 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 shine your light within us. Amen.